Welcome to Rink Wrap, the Bruins podcast with your host, Mick Collagio. Mick has been covering the Bruins since the Boston Garden days and has the guests and the insights on the hockey world from the local to the NHL. So drop what you're doing, drop the puck, and listen in on Rink Wrap with Mick Collagio. Hello, everyone. It's Rick Rap, the podcast. Been a little bit of a break here during the month of January, but we're back on February 2nd, 2019. It is Saturday, and the Boston Bruins are at Washington tomorrow, Sunday, February 3rd, the Super Bowl Sunday, that is. And um, let's just stay away from that little dilemma for a moment and get back to this current predicament that the Bruins are in, they find themselves uh, in a situation where they're fighting to solidify a playoff spot during a part of the season where the lineup has gotten healthy and they should be uh, solidifying their grasp on that playoff spot, challenging Toronto for home ice and second place in the Atlantic division and instead, we have scenarios uh, where uh, there are problems with the way they are playing the game, uh, problems with what is commonly referred to as secondary scoring, uh, and um, the many media remedies are being touted. Um, I've talked to some people, uh, read some articles, I've watched the games, and I have my own opinions as well. So... Uh, just to kind of rejoin here, uh, Rink Wrap the podcast is the audio arm of Rink Wrap, which also comes to you in print, uh, mostly during Bruins games, uh, on at, at the following website, blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. And I'm your host, Mick Collagio. And you can find Rink Wrap the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we upload them to omni.fm. And then you can get them at Google Play, iTunes, and places like that. We link them to our uh, online articles on the Bruins, uh, including those uh, written by Gatehouse uh, Bruins beat writer Mike Loftus of the Quincy Patriot Ledger, who has been on the beat since the late 80s. And uh, very shortly before I started uh, covering the Bruins in during the 1991-92 season. And for the last several, um, I have been wedged uh, over the Zamboni doors in the press halo between Mike Loftus and Matt Kalman, who has been writing for a number of uh, places. He once upon a time had the Bruins blog. He grew his brand and was writing for NHL.com. And then he was freelancing to the Boston Herald and uh, other publications and is the author of, of a few notable books, uh, including the one that he just co-authored with Dale Arnold of these Walls Could Talk series on the Boston Bruins. Um, so, um, and my pal, uh, my favorite Bruins fan in the world, Kevin Votor, uh, has had his season tickets uh, for probably 50 years, not counting um, when he served in Desert Storm. He sits in Section 324 of the balcony, which is on the east end of Boston, uh, of TD Garden. I almost said Boston Garden. Uh, second to last row right on the aisle. 
And Kevin has authored a book uh, with Kerry Keene, who has been published uh, previously uh, with uh, some great little books on the Bruins. And together they have just come up with one um, focusing on Bobby Orr. And uh, so that, I have heard, is in stores now. So uh, check your check your usual suspects of where you get your books uh, for that one as well. All right, so now let's go back to uh, the Friday night, uh, the Thursday night, I'm sorry, game against the Philadelphia Flyers that the Bruins lost uh, in OT on the Sanheim goal, which was an excellent goal for that defenseman. He is better than I realized. Uh, the Flyers, with Carter Hart in net, uh, hopelessly out of the playoff race down the bottom of the Metro division. They, um, let's see, what, what is the exact data on this? Now that they've won something like six in a row, uh, at the 51 game point, they are still under NHL 500 at 22, 23, and 6, which puts them way below real 500 and out of the playoff race because out of eight teams in that division, they are seventh. And the gap between them and the top three spot, which would uh, guarantee them a playoff spot with 31 games remaining in the season, is 11 points. It doesn't sound like much, but when you're trying to climb, you need everybody to lose while you win just about every one of your games. Now, Andrew Hammond, the goaltender, a.k.a. the Hamburglar, did come up with Ottawa and spoiled the Bruins' Uh, chances at a playoff berth a few years ago uh, by going on a mercurial run with the Ottawa Senators before uh, reassuming uh, his journeyman position in the game. And um, But he got hot at the right time, so it can happen, but it takes a lot of dominoes to fall. Can you see Washington, Columbus, Carolina, and the Rangers all faltering? Um, the Rangers are already in the same boat at 51 points. Carolina trying to uh, cling to uh, a playoff hope, but they are uh, a game, a point under, below the playoff line. Uh, they need, at that 25-20-6, the, the Michelagio formula for your general expectations as to whether or not that team will make the playoffs is not about points. Uh, it's about wins. And you have to win at least half your games in order to have a realistic shot at making the playoffs. So when you look at the NHL standings, the best way to figure out if a team is in the playoff hunt or not is is whether or not they've won at least half of their games. If you are, if a team has an extraordinary number of loser points, either losses by shootout or overtime, uh, that that may they may be able to sneak in with something like 38 wins. The Bruins did that once. Um, the Calgary Flames, I believe it was, in the Avalanche, both have missed the playoffs uh, with over 41 wins. The Bruins even did it a few years ago. Uh, I think they had 42 and missed because they didn't have enough loser points. But assuming a general average number of loser points, uh, you know, in the median of the NHL uh, for overtime and shootout losses – then win at least 42, and you're probably in. That's the way to look at it. Win less, fewer than 40, 41, 
you're probably going to miss. That's generally how it goes, just to develop your sense of expectation while you're looking at the NHL standings. So let's apply it just a little bit here. Um, the Bruins are 27-17-7 at the 51-game mark. And so you add 17 and 7, and that's 24. And with having won 27 games, having failed to win in 24 others, the Bruins are a plus three. So that's a playoff record. And it's attested by the fact that they are, in, in fact, in third place, albeit barely. Um, they have played 51 games, so have the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, the teams both uh, have 61 points. Montreal, oddly enough, has one more win, but it doesn't count because the only wins that you do count are the ROWs, the regulation and or overtime wins. Shootout wins get subtracted when you pair teams uh, for the tiebreaker of wins, which is the first tiebreaker in the standings. Shootout wins get subtracted from your win total. Uh, I like to call them HPWs, hockey play wins. Actual hockey play wins the game. That's the kind of wins you have to have in order for them to be in your wins tiebreaker total. So uh, amazingly, the Bruins and Montreal are both at 26 ROWs. So what is the next tiebreaker after that? Well, that's going to take too much rink wrap time, and I don't have the data right in front of me. So let's just abort that mission right for now and continue on with um, two uh, issues uh, facing the Bruins. Uh, and contrary to uh, what is talked about most right now with the Bruins, which is their lack of secondary scoring, um, and just as a parenthetical remark to this, I did uh, recommend in print at the beginning of the season that the that David Pasternak play with David Krejci because given Riley Nash's departure in free agency to Columbus, and don't talk to me about how he's not producing, it doesn't matter. He stabilized the Bruins' third line last year, allowed them to be a solid three-four line team, and thereby establish four lines of pressure, thereby establish the continuity and stranglehold that system play allows teams to build good five-on-five resumes and be good five-on-five teams and thereby set the foundation to be a successful team in the postseason as well. This is documented history. This is how teams win. The Bruins are overly power play reliant and they have a lot of minus players. And I know a lot of people, it's fashionable right now to hate the plus minus stat, but you cannot uh, argue the track record that minus players have, particularly top four defensemen, in, in so much as competing for the Stanley Cup. If that is what you have for a team, that is what you're going to get in the playoffs, and that's how, and that's a recipe for for losing. Riley Nash was key to solidifying the Bruins' two-way game last year, not just on his line, but in providing the cog that allowed the continuity to flow, just like Chris Kelly had during the glory run of uh, 2011 and 13. Uh, you, you have this scenario where you can. 
get your team to a certain point and be able to pressure that uh, opponent and cause those penalties to be taken, cause weak play by hemming a team in. This is the way the NHL is now, and it still is that way. Heavy team, stick team, speed team, doesn't matter. You've got to have continuity. You've got to be able to establish a five-on-five stranglehold on the opponent to be a successful playoff team. So as you are examining the Boston Bruins for weaknesses and you want to get um, a lot of people clamoring for a top six forward, that would help. It certainly would give uh, you two scoring lines, which allows you to have the bottom six just not lose the game. So that's another way of attacking the problem, and it's a legitimate way. So thus the Wayne Simmons talk, thus the Artemi Panarin talk, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, now, in regards to uh, the third line, and going back to what I originally introduced Riley Nash in the conversation, and I've talked about this a million times before, but just to sum it up, him leaving put the Bruins in a situation whereby they had to either band-aid the hole with a reliable player or use the regular season as a community auditions uh, program for ultimate uh, you know, replacements, uh, who's going to win that job, and now how many people have played in that spot. First of all, Sean Corrales moved up and down the lineup. Do we really want to go through all of it? Uh, what we can say is that things have unfolded just as they should have. The Bruins have had a reliable fourth line, which has sort of become their third line, but it's really a fourth line, and it's an energy line. It's a hard line. And as far as having a third line goes, they've been continuing here uh, with the trade deadline in sight, uh, February 25th, I believe. Uh, it's a Monday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern. And, and, and here we are on the day before the Super Bowl, and this is an unsolved matter. Trent Frederick, uh, you know, uh, he came in, had his adrenaline lace debut. It was very much like Jake DeBrus debut. It was like a lot of others we've seen. And it's in uh, Ryan Donato's. Uh, you know, it, it's very easy to, to, to think, okay, that finally, it's about time. We got this thing solved. And, of course, his last game was uh, not like the first. And so what's going to happen with him going forward? Well, in the long range, a, his play is certainly something to be encouraged by, but the kid is 20 years old, and so let's just chill on that one, give it time, and realize that the Bruins are still very much a work in progress, and they have failed to this point, and I don't mean this in the decision-making aspect, of management or coaching, but in the uh, performance aspect, uh, they have failed to put together a solid, f- consistent five-on-five brand of even strength hockey, the kind that lends confidence to a team's chances to win some playoff series. That's been a battle because anytime you have a weak link in your chain, that comes back to haunt you. And that that line has been that for the Bruins this year. And we kind of knew that what was going to happen. And here we are at the two-thirds pole of the season, and we're still in that spot. And what's the answer? Well, uh, if you get acquire a winger 
or top, another top six forward, which allows you to have the David Krejci line uh, really come on and, and really not waste any more of David Krejci's career uh, like it has been the past four or five years with a revolving door of wingers that he's had. Uh, Jake DeBrus solidifies one side of that. What will happen on the other, we really don't know yet. Um, I'm sure that Don Sweeney has uh, looked at a lot of options and has obviously got – uh, he's had time now to evaluate his farm, his prospects, his his picks, and decide what can I live with, what can I live without with. Uh, well, that didn't come out right, but you know what I meant. And and now he's in position to be able to make a better judgment on who's going to be the part of this young group and all these draft picks and all these prospects and these Providence Bruins and kids in college and kids in junior, Jack Stadnika, uh, you know, who were they ready to gamble on as they make decisions now to move forward? And that's key because you got to be right about that. And because that whittles down how many you have to choose from. It's no longer, well, we have 12 guys and we hope the three emerge. Now you're going to whittle that list down in order to make an acquisition that solidifies your game. Now, I thought that since Bergeron and Marchand have such a long-standing track record of taking right-handed shots, Tyler Sagan, left-handed shots, Yaramir Yager and Mark Recchi at the opposite end of their careers, and making them successful players and being a successful line, why not beef up Krejci's line? Because you already know you're going to have a problem on your third line. You know you got a good fourth line. That was my theory at the beginning of the season. I totally respect, and I can't reiterate this enough, any coach in any sport, you put a hammer in their hand, they're not going to take apart the hammer and try to figure out how to make another tool out of it or maybe two tools out of it. They're going to swing the hammer. That's what you do. If you're a football coach and you have a, a running back, you know, then you're going you're gonna to run that guy. You're going to plow ahead. You're going to do what you got to do. And now uh, the Bruins are in this position in part because they lack secondary scoring, and that's part of the gamble that you take no matter what your choice you make. Bruce Cassidy has chosen for the most part of the season to swing his Bergeron, Marchand, Pasternak hammer. Pasternak got his 30th goal the other night, and the Bruins lost because they didn't get anything anywhere else. And while they're not getting anything anywhere else, and this is what Bruce Cassidy stressed after the game, they're not defending properly, and that's part two of what we need to talk about here. So his theory versus my theory on what would have been the best way to conduct the offense in light of the situation on the third line is now immaterial because we're at almost at the trade line deadline, and the Bruins are are involved and reportedly alive in trade ta- talks with uh, some solutions to their problem. So the relevance of the third line is not, uh, you know, that's not really what this is about anymore. Now it's about a top six forward that's going to help the Bruins uh, play those lines more, get more scoring from them, and 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 live with what the rest of is going to happen in the bottom six and play them less. And that's the way this season is just going to go. It's not ideal. It's not what everybody wants. It's not what anybody would want theoretically, but that's how this is going to go. So you're listening to Rink Brap with Nick Collagio, and I'm blathering on about the Bruins' plight of late 
which has been disappointing considering that they've gotten to the point where they're practically a healthy team. And now that they're finally in that position, after being such uh, soldiers throughout their adversities of earlier in the year when injuries were taking giant bites out of their core players, Bergeron and Shara, out five weeks at the same time, I didn't think it was possible to survive that, and yet they have. And here they are. And so now that you're in this situation, uh, you expect more, and they're getting less. And um, so let's just review. I'm going to read to you from the transcript of Bruce Cassidy's um, a post-game discussion from Thursday night against the Flyers. And and I'm going to key on the question that I got in, or almost got in, but he was kind of, you know, he was upset, and so um, he, you know, and then he very courteously asked me, hey, I jumped on you there. Was that the question, you know, and, and I said, no, that's <laughs> You've gone down the street that I was trying to turn you. So, um, and then Mike Loftus had a good follow-up on that because of Johnny Moore. You, you sit five out of seven games, he comes back, and then, and then he, uh, you know, got in a pickle there where um, Rask had to stop a breakaway and then a penalty shot because of something that Butch said the Bruins practice all the time where if you're the defenseman and Moore was in that case at the left point, left shot, and he was supposed to take the puck to the outside and look for his angle, and instead he turned back to the middle and got his shot blocked, and that resulted in the Lawton uh, breakaway that turned into Lawton's penalty shot that Rask uh, stopped. So the Bruins wound up getting a point thanks to that save. All right, so here we go. Bruce Cassidy, and I may start reading something and then skip a little here, but we're going to get into it right here. All right, yeah, uh, listen, give Philly credit. They're playing well. They've won six in a row now. They're doing the things they need to do to win, but more self-inflicted damage from the back end tonight. Very disappointed, that group. The ability to identify what's going on, time, and score. To give up a breakaway in the last minute, get caught up ice. They gave up the two-on-one to Giroux. Same thing earlier. They got caught. We have to fix it. The guys have to decide if they're going to play the right way and buy in and understand what we are right now. We're, if we're scoring five goals a night you get a little you get a little different animal you can overlook some of those things we're not in that position right now hopefully we are at some point but we're not there right now so uh you know and this is kind of come back to charlie mcavoy uh and charlie mcavoy you know in his two full seasons as a pro he's played more playoffs than brandon carlo who's still itching again in his first playoff game and let's hope it happens for the kid this year he's had a breakout season as a as a shutdown defenseman and his game is his growth of his game is very linear right now but i i can't stress this enough either when you're brandon carlo your game starts out simple and it grows out from there you start out as a defensive stopper who just wants to move the puck one stage and then get off the ice make your stops move the puck one stage get off the ice charlie mcavoy to borrow Bruce's phrase, different animal. Uh, Charlie McAvoy is a dynamic, dynamic, dynamic two-way player. Is he a good power play player yet? No. If he was, you know, we might have seen Tory Krug traded by now with his contract being what it is and the length of it remaining, yada, yada. Uh, but McAvoy's growth pattern necessarily is going to be more up and down because of the ambition and stunt-making and play-making that accompanies his game. Now, 
just go back to the Winnipeg game for a second here, and there's a simple play that's going to be very forgotten. Mark Shifley is racing up the left wing for a breakout pass, and Charlie McAvoy steps up into the neutral zone near the penalty box, steps out wide, and breaks up the play. That's a very, very risky and difficult play to make. He was not going outside the box to do it. It was a system play that has been installed by uh, Bruce Cassidy as the Bruins have tweaked their defense to get back the puck sooner uh, rather than just staying in the dots and making that a hard rule and playing 100% zone. When the puck is in the neutral zone, if you have the support behind you, you are supposed to hit that trigger and get out wide to stop. And there's the, you know, the, the number one center on one of the top teams in the NHL, and he's in flight, and Charlie McAvoy made an extremely cool-headed athletic system play to break it up. Uh, I wish I could roll tape for you right now on that because I thought it was so perfectly executed that it really shows what the potential that this kid has. And so uh, McAvoy is not about attitude. It's not about being late for a meeting. It's about the fact that his game is very ambitious. It's a high-end game of instinct blended with learning. And any young defenseman, uh, in a situation like his, with a game like his, an athleticism like his, is going to have some ups and downs. And they will, pers- per- they will dog him for years to come. It was four years before uh, Bobby Orr and Drew Doughty won the Stanley Cup. They were four full years in the NHL. Ray Bork, full, full, four full years before he saw a conference final. Age 22 for all aforementioned Hall of Famers. Uh, Charlie McAvoy is younger than that, and he's even younger than that experience-wise because, let's see, what's he got this year? He's got 24 games this year. If you played the whole season like David Pasternak, you've got 51. Charlie McAvoy has 24. What does that tell you? That tells you that his experience isn't the same at the same level of even had he been healthy for the entire time he's been a pro with the Bruins. So, you know, I can't uh, stress this enough, that McAvoy is not doing anything wrong. It's just this is the road that a high-end puck-moving defenseman with a physical bend on his game, a complete player defenseman, this is what you get. If you have discontinuity in the time that you have to develop your game, it's going to come out. It's going to uh, slow your already most difficult of all development curves in professional hockey. So there's that as well. So let's, let's – uh, and now in, in regards to this Zidane Chara business uh, – One thing that Bruce Cassidy has done a great deal of, uh, and he's been really good about this, is when a player is in a position of accountability, whether it was Tuka Rask or uh, even Patrice Bergeron, if that player 
uh, fails the team in some dimension or needs to step up in some dimension, Cassidy has not excluded that player from the group. He treats that player like a member of the group, regardless of their position in the group, thereby not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Contaminating the dynamic of group accountability. A team has to be all for one and one for all, and it can't be that if some players are above the law. That said, when he did field a question on Zidane Chara uh, for his part in the goal that was scored or the transition play where McAvoy missed the net on the, uh, the, the, the he spun a right-handed shot wide of the net when he pinched to the top of the circle on the fly. Puck comes flying out the other side, and uh, Giroux winds up with a uh, breakaway goal out of it um, because he got behind Chara. Well, I asked Bruce, is it realistic for Chara, who's you know fairly you know pedestrian in that situation, um, not just because of how old he is and that he's not a fast skater, especially at his age, but that situation with that open ice, um, you know, so... So here he goes. Yeah, he's one that has to listen. He's the uh, captain of the hockey club, so that message has to come. He's won a Stanley Cup here by being a defensive stalwart, one of the best penalty killers in the league. So, yes, he's part of that group and the biggest part of it. So I would hope that he hey, he's a terrific leader, that the next game he understands what makes us successful. We'll have a conversation about it, but he is the leader back there. He's got to get Charlie to buy in, got to get Carlo. He has meaning Carlo has bought in, and that has to continue. We have to. Kevin Miller, I put him in that group too. They have to lead back there and understand what it takes to be successful right now for us. Right now for us is team defense, good special teams, and hopefully get some secondary scoring when the top line's not on. So, yeah, that's part of it. So then I brought up McAvoy missing the net and how that puts Chara in such a pickle. Well, there's the first problem, right, said Cassidy, part of our decor doesn't have numbers because we don't hit the net very often. So there's an issue right there. Now, are you going to get mad at every player that misses the net every time? Of course not. But after two periods, I think Philly missed the net once. So that's partly on us. That is on the player to hit the net. You're shooting to score or you're shooting for a second chance. There's a delicate balance. These guys are pros. You trust them to make the right decision. But yes, then the puck rattles around and now he's caught, meaning Chara. Now you need a forward coverage. So our forward is covering, but do they make a quick play? They stretch the zone. The pass beats us. So your deep partner has to identify where the most dangerous guy in the ice is after that happens, and it's up to him to find him and locate him, especially in today's game. A lot of teams will send a guy. Happens to us a lot. (laughs) So we have to be aware. So I follow up with Chara in the situation he's in. So Bruce says, I don't know if the back pressure in that case would have caught, caught Giroux. He's behind everybody. Can't expect to have a forward behind ID. That's unrealistic. They're attacking the net. They're reloading for Charlie. You hope that there's a pass, that that's a pass that gets intercepted by whatever defenseman is in by his partner. Again, that's time and score decisions you have to make as defenseman when you're in there. Now, it's still the first period, but what? But it happened later again. 
In the third, we got caught low again. We got lucky, not lucky, but we got away with it, meaning Tuca made the save when Moore got his shot blocked. So we have to make sure, that's the play he's talking about, I think it is. Uh, so we have to make sure we reinforce those points, especially now. Goals aren't coming easy for us. So understand, listen, when they do, you can open up a little. So there's a little bit of that that needs to be understood, and I believe we've talked about it. We've got to open our ears a little bit and get it. That's the kind of point we're getting to now. So finally, in general, regarding defense personnel and what our coach's recourse is as we look toward the Washington game tomorrow, well, you can change the lineup. We've got extra defensemen here to get the message across. We can keep instilling what makes us successful. Right now, I think we're the best defensive team in the Atlantic Division goals against. Let's see. Is that true? Let's see. Is that true? Is that true? Uh, Tampa 144, Toronto 143, Boston 135. Yeah, nobody else is down in the 130s. The Bruins are the best team in goals against in the Atlantic Division, substantially so. So, uh, and I think the close with the Islanders in the whole Eastern Conference. What are the Isles? The Isles are 123. That's ridiculous. Incredible, the Islanders. Barry Trotz, Coach of the Year. Jack Adams, give it to him right now. Uh, so let's go back to what Bruce was saying. Uh so if it's not good enough for the guys, then they need to understand. We have to make the point clear that that's who we are right now until we start scoring and get more secondary scoring. Part of that is obviously the D. They want to help there, so I understand that, uh, meaning they want to help the offense. Uh, but we've got to find the right balance of what's helping and what ends up hurting us. And tonight, it was much more hurting than helping. So the Bruins are suddenly becoming a Carolina Hurricanes, Philadelphia Flyers, uh, send everybody up, kind of a team, uh, and they get in trouble this way because that's really not who they are because they're not producing enough to offset the leaks. And you know what? This is where, you know, and I don't, I really try to stay away from this subject, but one of the reasons I'm so cynical about the, the uh, stats, the fancy stats movement is because whatever's trendy today it's like, it's, my, it's like fashion. It's basically like what kind of tie are you wearing with your suit? Those stats, whatever they're doing today, they're going to be gone next year. They're going to be replaced by something else that's even better. And then that thing will be mocked as being bad just the way they mock plus minus now. Uh, you know, but, hey, plus minus actually measures which pucks go in the net. So I think you have to look at it. Uh, there's always a reason for stats. Every stat. There's no stat in the world that doesn't have a story behind it that should be understood in order to reflect upon the stat and put it in a context whereby it can become valuable information rather than, uh, you know, I think there's just so many assumptions that are getting made with this wave of stats. And and this is one of the uh, places where I don't like it. I don't think, I think you have uh, offensive defensemen. I don't care if you create this many scoring chances or this many shot attempts or whatever, because if once a game you are guaranteed to give up a glittering opportunity or a breakaway or an odd man rush because of the way you're playing the rest of the time, if you lead with your jaw, you will get knocked out. And that is what the Bruins are in danger of becoming with their current style of play. And Bruce has recognized this, and he's chomping down on it. And don't tell me he's not the same guy as last year. He is the same guy as last year. But the team has had more experience together as a group. The players have had more experience in the league. And therefore, the parenting, for lack of a better word, needs to tweak. 
And that's a tougher love, and that's where it's going right now. Finally, on this edition of Rink Wrap, uh, I had a chance to have a little bit of um, back and forth with Patris Bergeron uh, following the game, uh, not the Philly game. I can't remember which game it was anymore. It was the 29th. What would the 29th be? Uh, maybe that is the Philly game. So so uh, here's here's Bergie. Yeah. So we're going to knock on wood on that one. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where um, – it's going to be good to give us stability and, and, and everyone falling in where we should be in the lineup and, and, and finding a role, establishing some chemistry also as uh, as lines and, and, and moving forward uh, like that. So um, definitely looking forward to that. Yeah. Aside from the whole goal production business end of it, when you guys are at your best, you roll four and you always have a sustained pressure yeah. with that. How, how do you rate the progress of the season because the beginning of the year that was very difficult to achieve three maybe at times but not four it seems like it's come along somewhat yeah for sure and i think it goes back to being healthy and 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 lines you know having more stability and 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 keeping the same lines together and you know you you think about the corral line now you know they're a unit and and they can talk to each other and feel good and and, and start making plays and and whatnot and you can see that with different different lines now so it's i think it's uh, uh, it's going to be good, and, and, and yeah, I, I think the um, the growth on, on our team has been uh, uh, has been good that way. But you know, I think we can still take another step uh, for moving forward in, in in the last stretch here. W's haven't come as easily this year as they did last year, but part of that just seems to be that so many teams that were easy to roll last year are tougher now, and it's just a grind. Mm-hmm. And you guys might be better off for the hard miles this year as a group. Yeah, and I think you know the um, it's one of those things where when you, you have a successful year the year before, teams are ready for you, and and I think that's what we're seeing this year. And we don't have an easy game, and and which is a good thing, which is fine. It's a good challenge, but you know, you know, maybe last year we cut a few teams. Uh, um, I wouldn't say taking us lightly, but still, I thought we we surprised a few teams, and this year we're not doing that. So it's about working hard. And then you're that much better. You figure if you then reinvent it and how you're because it's like what works the first time for so many young players doesn't work the second time, right. and now they have to be better. Yeah, yeah. and that's the learning curve, and the, again, the growth that, from our team. So I think. Uh, uh, you're totally right that way, and it's it's. Uh, I think all those guys are are growing their game as the the year is going on right now. So it's it's great to see. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bergeron, uh, you know, always has a bead on the game of hockey and where it's going and how to reinvent himself like a chameleon in order not to do what so many other players have done with the same information, which is be stealth and sneak up on it and try to steal a goal from it. Uh, But what he does is play in the heartbeat of the game the way the game needs him to. And I don't think I've ever seen a player that recognizes that uh, in this era of uh, hyper-coaching, hyper-system play, video uh, analysis, and and he just has such an incredible ability to focus on what is going on out there and what should I do about it because what he does about it is 100% of the time. When he doesn't have the puck, he's every bit as important as when he does. And so 
uh, that's uh, one of the reasons why when Bergeron just is talking in general about what's going on with the game, what's going on with the development of the Bruins group, uh, it's something you want to hear. So that's rink wrap for today, and it's been a little while, so that's probably why I was extra long-winded. We're in the 37th minute here. Actually, I should, it'll be more than that once I edit in uh, Bergeron's uh, comments because that'll lengthen where we are. So this might be the longest rink wrap of all time. So I hope you hung in there as the Bruins uh, got uh, head toward this trade deadline. And I didn't even talk about the left side of the defense as a personnel issue. So go figure. How did I get to this point? As there, there's more time before the trade deadline. So that may yet be coming from me uh, because uh, I have some statistical things that I'm looking at relative to teams that go deep in the playoffs or win the Stanley Cup and some consistent characteristics thereof that I don't believe the Bruins meet. That's one of the reasons why I wasn't up for rental last year. The team was too young uh, and why I'm not up for rental now. And I don't think the Bruins are up for rental either. So don't uh, be shocked if they uh, do something a little more creative and a little more involved as they try to figure out here how to get the Bruins on a higher plane, very much like the Lightning did last year by getting Ryan McDonough for their left side, the guy that got away. And now the Toronto Maple Leafs have done the same thing with the acquisition of Jake Muzzin, and I didn't even talk about it. So that's Rink Rap for, for now. Uh, remember to read Rink Rap uh, on uh, blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins and follow on Twitter at Mick Collagio. Until next time. Happy hockey, everyone.